welcome to Mommy. Miss Mama says bad words. Thanks for listening. See you next time. I, I did it. Good job. Finding the right jeans is hard. Accepting your jeans is even harder. Whether you wear boyfriend or bootcut, high-rise or low-rise, this podcast will teach you to love the jeans you are in. I'm Rachel. And I'm Tina. And we're going to use modern research to bust diet myths and get real about body after baby. We're going to take you on a journey of unpacking your old beliefs about food and weight so you can learn to nourish your body and raise body-confident kids. So put your booty in a chair and let's talk mom jeans. Welcome to season four of Mom Jeans. This season is called the Bite Size Education Series, where we give you quick bits of science and psychoeducation to help you in your journey towards body respect. This season, we will be answering your listener questions and interviewing amazing experts to expand your knowledge. So get ready for easily digestible, pun intended, pieces of education in podcast form. And today we are going to be interviewing Dr. Monge. Maria Monge, MD, is an associate professor of pediatrics at the University of Texas at Austin, Dell Medical School, and serves as the division director of adolescent medicine in the Department of Pediatrics. She founded and directs the Adolescent Medicine Clinic at Dell Children's Medical Group, an interprofessional clinic devoted to the care of vulnerable children, adolescents, and young adults. Providing care for patients with eating disorders is one of the primary goals of the clinic. Let's get to it. All right, well, welcome to this week's episode of Mom Jeans. We are joined with the fabulous Dr. Monge, and uh, yeah, we're just so excited to really dive in deeper to talking about kids and teens and eating disorders and who better yet than the expert in the city of Austin, Texas, and of children and eating disorders, but Dr. Monge. So um, Dr. Monge is very busy and has graced us with her presence. So I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for being here and taking the time to talk with us. So welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. I must give you all credit for doing such important work having hard discussions. Um, these are the kind of topics that people want more information about, but honestly, I feel like aren't going to go to their friends because they were worried they're doing something wrong or something that they're going to be judged for themselves. And um, often, frankly, this topic of eating and food brings up so many issues for moms themselves that, um, they have to put some of their own stuff aside, but also it's so intertwined with the way that they're helping their kids that it's um, it's great that you're bringing this these issues up and talking about them. So I'm happy to be here. Thank you. So could you share with our listeners who you are, your experience and your specializations? Sure. So um, as Tina said, my name is Maria Monge. I use the pronoun she, her. I moved to Austin about uh, eight years ago or so after um, having had a career, well, short career 
as a high school teacher. And then um, I went to medical school, ended up ultimately doing a fellowship in adolescent medicine um, at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. And then I moved to Austin where my husband lived at the time and I had family. So I started the um, adolescent medicine program at Dell Children's Hospital in 2014 uh, and have since grown it to, with the help of many others, grown it to an interprofessional um, clinic that sees adolescents, young adults, uh, adults even for eating disorders. Uh, we have a dietitian on staff, we have social workers on staff, psychiatrists, and then um, physicians and nurse practitioners all working together. Oh, and I can't forget my wonderful nurses. So we all kind of work together to really provide outpatient level of care for patients and their families um, who are affected by eating disorders. That is that is me. And I think that the experience that I, the train that I have certainly was part of the um, way that I have gained knowledge, but actually it's just experience in the field, doing this often enough and um, gaining kind of the trust of the community and then working through patients together with the community as well um, has been really helpful. Yeah, the, the clinic is such an awesome resource. And um, luckily, you know, it was you and then you brought on more uh, practitioners. And so it just means that more clients are having more resources to get the specialized care that they really need from medical professionals. So it's absolutely amazing. I wish there was something like this everywhere and that was accessible to all. So yeah. Um, well, we're going to dive right into kind of talking about different signs um, for eating disorders that uh, kids may be experiencing. So can you tell us a little bit about what you know to be some signs that a child may actually be struggling with an eating disorder versus engaging in maybe this normal childlike behavior of food exploration, listening to their body and like normal body image issues? Like where's that line drawn? So great question on, on where the line is drawn. And frankly, it's, it's pretty individual. Um, it's, it's very hard to make broad sweeping generalizations about what is eating disorder behavior, what is disordered eating behavior, what is kind of a normal um, adolescent, child adolescent brain development, um, you know, figuring out likes, wants, satiety cues, all of the things that we hope for, hope for our children. Um, I can speak as a mom as well. I have a six-year-old at home. Um, it's... It's interesting because they're constantly bombarded by images of things that they're supposed to like, be, do, whatever it is. And so much of that is focused on weight or shape that I do think it's confusing for kids because, you know, we can give them lots of positive messages, but then the other things that they hear may or may not be reinforcing that. So when I hear folks telling me that there's a shift, right, that, that sudden shifts are always um you know, kind of red flags for me that if someone's been eating fairly normally, you know, asking for seconds or being like, you know, I'm full, I'm done for today. Um, and not really struggling to finish what they've ordinarily finished or eating more than what they've ordinarily eaten. That's, that's when I, that's when I worry that if it's like an abrupt kind of change that things have, um, 
things have gone down um, from baseline. On the other hand, I find that families may not notice there is an abrupt change and it's kind of a gradual um, over time. And then they maybe they go into the pediatrician's office or they go in somewhere to a sports physical and everyone looks at the skin. They're like, whoa, you know, this their weight maybe hasn't changed over the last two years, which is always a red flag. Um, or they've lost a bunch of weight and no one really recognized it. And, you know, families will come in often and say, I can't believe this. I should have recognized that something was going on. And I say, no, you see your kid every single day. It's very difficult to notice weight changes, especially um, as they're happening. So what I would, instead of weight changes, and I certainly don't encourage folks to weigh um, kids at home, is behavior changes. So sudden fixation on the contents of food, suddenly taking an interest that they've never had before on exact measurements or what is going in into foods, um, asking questions that truly, so there, there's a certain amount of like interest. Sure. Oh, you want to cook with me? Great. But you know, I like to cook here, join me and do this. But then there's the, are you sure? Are you, are you sure that it's just a cup or are you sure that you didn't put too much butter in the pan? Like this is too much. And watching that rising distress, that's when I worry um, that this is going into disorder type relationships with food. Um, so there's the abrupt change and then there's the gradual over time, but suddenly realizing that there are comments and things happening that had never happened in the past. As the therapist, I'm glad you bring up that piece of it because I agree it's not always necessarily the behavior change at the dinner table. It's also any mood changes as well. If there's fear involved or distress or depression or anxiety, if you're seeing the combination of the two, usually that's a pretty good sign that it's something going on. Yeah. I, I saw a patient today who, you know, his mom said, she's loved eating. She's loved food. She's loved all kinds of food. And then for the past year, it's been a year, all of a sudden she hasn't wanted to eat, you know, big swaths of food groups, not just one particular thing. All of a sudden, no, I don't like Brussels sprouts anymore. It's like, no, no, I don't like anything that's sweet anymore. And she used to love sweets. So there's, in my experience, there is no medical condition that would lead someone to suddenly wiping out an entire food group. Um, and so if that's happening, that to me needs to be talked about more. Right. And I think it's similar to our listener question where it's like, hey, all of a sudden my kid started asking about why her body is changing and now doesn't want to start wearing her bathing suit or is stopping to eat certain foods that none of this really was happening before. And I think, yes, some of this stuff can be like now my kid's going through puberty and they're feeling uncomfortable in some of these changes, but behaviorally their food's still okay, their mood is normal, they're just asking questions or feeling a little bit more vulnerable, right? I think ultimately it comes down to the, if you're unsure, talk with your doctor and the doctor really is gonna be able to come through that medical lens and go, yeah, you might need to speak with a therapist or dietitian or come back in six months to kind of check this out. Um, I think there's always this piece of like, I always tell people like genetics loads the gun and environment pulls the trigger. And we see that this last year with the pandemic, really environment has been the thing to pull the trigger. I feel like everyone has a wait list and treatment centers are so busy. And so do you have any feedback regarding that where some people are like, well, 
I mean, no one in my family has eating disorders. Maybe this is my kid just being a kid. So so it is true that we do think that some pieces of eating disorders can be genetic, although genetics is not just a simple Mendelian inheritance, right? When your parents have it, then you have a 25% or 50% chance of getting something. What we're learning about the genetics of eating disorders, and certainly there are folks much wiser than I in this and some really amazing work being done across the globe, specifically places like University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. They have an excellent kind of genetics uh, investigation into the roots of eating disorder behaviors. Um, We think it's often like an epigenetic phenomenon. So in other words, it it is kind of what you were saying, Tina, you have maybe certain genetic tendencies, but then experiences in life have those genes turn on and off. And so even if a parent has the genetics for it, maybe they weren't exposed to the same environmental stress that then didn't have the gene expressed or, or whatever the case may be. And so then they don't manifest with having an eating disorder later in life. Um, but it doesn't mean that that tendency wasn't there in the family. And we, we do see that quite frequently. So the gen- genetics is funny um, in that it's a whole lot more complicated than what most people understand. I don't pretend to understand all of it. Um, and I say to folks all the time that things have to start somewhere. So just because no one's ever had it before, just because you're someone in the family hasn't ever shown signs of it. If you, any, any disease, any process starts from the beginning of that thing. And so it's, I find overwhelming um, to families if they think that their child has an eating disorder, there's a lot of self-blame, you know, what have I done? What, what could have happened here that I caused this? And we try really hard to dissuade all of that, like just really encourage folks that how they got to this point is unlikely to be their fault actually is never their fault and and kids don't choose to have eating disorders um even though it may seem like that in the moment they, they don't choose to have eating disorders um but we're at this point and then we can just move forward so it's really trying to to keep people forward looking as opposed to what led up to it at least at the beginning and then ultimately if the environment within the house or in the environment that the child is exposed to regularly seems to be perpetuating some of the behaviors, then certainly looking at bigger, broader behavior change um, in the family system can target, you know, ultimate recovery. But often when folks are in my office, we're really trying to get a handle on the medical stability side of things. So we're not, um, we're not really looking, I would say, at some of the more nuanced behaviors that are happening within the family system. This. But that's, I get to reserve that um, because I'm the physician and not the mental health professional or the dietitian. Well, well, what should parents do if they feel like they're relating to what you're saying? They're seeing some of these signs and they want to help their child. They want to get their child help. What, what should they do? What are some good first steps that they should take? Yeah, so that's a, so um, we're asked that not infrequently. I'm asked that not infrequently. I think the first thing that I would say as a mom is to trust your mom instinct. So if, if you as a mom are like, this is, this isn't quite right. Something's going on. And let's say you go to a provider of some sort and they're like, Oh, it's fine. Their weight's fine. Like I'm not, but you and your gut are just thinking this isn't fine. Something else is going on. Get another opinion. I like, I encourage people to keep asking the questions and keep seeking the care until they really feel like, they're, they're being heard um, about what's going on. And so 
I think that's the first step is just it, with kids, especially if you're sensing it early, as you say, you know, I'm noticing this and you try to make I statements as opposed to you statements, you're doing this or you're doing that. And instead it's, I'm noticing that when we sit down to dinner, it's harder for you to eat. You know, I, I see this, I see this and make it observations. And I feel like it's less accusational, less confrontational in that case. And then you've made your case and then you see how things play out because it's possible, right? That a kid doesn't realize that what they're doing could potentially be dangerous. And so if you point it out and you say, I'm worried that you're not getting enough nutrients in for playing basketball, and I'm worried that you could pass out or have some other kind of life-threatening situation happen if you don't eat enough, the kid may say, okay, I will work on it, right? And so that can be your first step. And if the kid's like, yeah, so what, I don't care, then all of a sudden you think, oh, this is this is bad. If, if I'm saying that they could die and their response is, I don't care, then, then you think, okay, I've got to go get some help. And so um, I do think that there's a little bit of litmus testing you can do at home even just to see how kids respond to your concern. Um, now, I take that for, you know, if you're talking to a teenager, <laughs> their regard for concern from their parents is, you know, depends on the day. Uh, but I will say that kids without eating disorders are, are pretty receptive to nutritional information, especially when it comes from a place of concern about health. And so if you are sensing in your kid that you're bringing things up and they're totally dismissing them, um, that's, a, that's, that's a worry. And so then next step, right, calling the physician um, if you happen to know a therapist or dietitian who's skilled in, in this area, starting there is also fine. You, know, you, you don't necessarily have to start with a physician. Um, we certainly are not as trained as dietitians are in nutrition, and we're certainly not trained in therapy. So um, sometimes seeking out those professionals even before um, a physician is, is not a bad thing. So what if there are no doctors or no professionals that specialize in eating disorders in, you know, these patient areas, what would you recommend then? So there's a couple of great um, resources for families. Um, one of which um, the, yes, Academy of Eating Disorders Medical Standards Guide. So if, if folks don't have access to someone with a lot of knowledge in their area, um, I encourage families to educate themselves. Now, it's hard to expect and I, I certainly don't think that the burden of teaching should be placed upon the patient or the patient's family. However, in certain cases, you do have to be a little bit more proactive. So um, the Academy for Eating Disorders has a medical care standards guide um, that is, it, it's available for download. Um, and it's a great resource. It goes through multiple complications of eating disorders and it goes through scenarios. So if you are, if a child is sick enough to present to the emergency room, it has actually recommended tests that the emergency room should run. Um, so things that, you know, in, if you're in a hospital that's not attached to perhaps an academic medical center where there do tend to be eating disorder treatment teams, um, they may have no idea that you need an EKG or that you need to check a BM, uh, you know, for potassium or sodium or things in someone who's restricting their eating. 
So that guide can be a, a um, way for families to be proactive with care for their for their kids. Any other resources that you would recommend in general for parents around? So I routinely recommend Feast, um, the Feast website and their first, it's called First 30. So it's really a, you know, for, for families who are new into eating disorder treatments, really looking at empowering the family and, and um, understanding what brains are going through when an eating disorder is involved. I think it's really extraordinarily helpful. And families often, you know, the way that we parent typically tends to be not necessarily confrontational. And so parents, we want, we love our kids. We don't want our kids to be mad at us all of the time. And so we do give in to things within reason um, just to maintain peace, right? But with eating disorders, you can't, you can't give in to them. Um, and you have to hold boundaries that perhaps in your entire parenting experience, you've never had to hold before. And so what I have found Feast does is it demonstrates ways to do that. It, it gives patients and parents tools. I also like Modly, Modsley Parents um, website, again, for a community, for, um, for really just, again, empowering parents to take control of eating in the home. Um, the patient that I, that I had seen today, I looked at the family and I said, your child's eating disorder is running your house. And the mom said, yes, it is. And I said, we've got to stop that. We, we've got to stop that. And um, until that happens, unfortunately, the in, in my experience, the environment for recovery just isn't there because the eating disorder still makes the rules. So um, I think that from the very beginning, getting the family education so that everybody understands and is starting from the same place is hugely important. And on the medical side, I see that. Yeah, I think I think that was really helpful, especially because for so many, they don't have the, the medical professional that has the education experience that you do. So they might feel like they went to the doctor and they didn't get any answers. So I appreciate you telling parents that, you know what, you might have to advocate and do some education and and that's going to be part of the process here in the journey. Well, great. Dr. Munch, thank you so much for joining us today. And we really appreciate you spending, you know, this blurb of time with us and sharing your knowledge with us. So You're welcome. Um, I, again, so appreciative of the work that y'all do. It's um, a treat to get to work with people who understand um, and are on the same page. So teams are the best approach, I feel like, in eating disorder treatment. So it's, it's great when we get to work with so many fabulous people. Thank you for your time. That's a wrap on this episode of the Bite Size Education Series. And we hope this new information provides you with a more critical lens when you hear mainstream diet culture messaging. You can connect with us on social media, on Instagram, at MomJeans the podcast, and feel free to email your own listener questions to momjeansthepodcast at gmail.com. If you loved the episode, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes and recommend the episode to a friend. Sending you the inner strength to accept your jeans with a G and wear the jeans with a J. Bye. This episode of Mom Jeans was produced and edited by Rachel Coleman and Tina LaBoy. Just a reminder, this episode is not a substitute for therapeutic counsel or nutrition advice. 
thank you to Jerry DePizzo for the music production. You can find episode information and show notes at www.momjeansthepodcast.com. Follow us on Instagram at momjeansthepodcast and join the Mom Jeans the Podcast Facebook group to find a community of mamas learning to love their bodies and discussing the episodes. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Mom Jeans. See you next time.